All right. Well, for those of you who just joined um, during the sitting, welcome. My name is Eli. I'm going to be hosting um, Young Urban Zen tonight. Uh, thanks to, I guess, Koto now, uh, who's taken over the, the reins, um, although May did invite me. So you can blame this evening on who you'd like. Um, what else should I say? I guess that's about it. Let's jump into the talk. So um, we'll, I'll, I'll give it a talk here for about the next uh, 20 minutes or so. And then we'll have an opportunity to, um, yeah, give some comments, uh, any questions. I'll take a stab at it. And then um, after that, we'll do some uh, small group discussion. And that will be followed by closing remarks and announcements. I wanted to uh, start tonight by expressing uh, gratitude to Suzuki Roshi uh, for the teaching that uh, I'll be sharing tonight. Um, and I also want to give a big thanks to my, my personal teacher, um, Abed Ed, who has not only shared that teaching and, and practice with me, but has really held and cared for Zen Center over um, the decades, um, particularly over uh, the, the course of the pandemic. Um, yeah, to keep our, our school alive. So as you may have saw from the, the email, uh, this evening I'm going to be visiting uh, or revisiting for many of you Suzuki Roshi's teaching about beginner's mind. Um, I, assuming that there may be a few people who are not completely uh, familiar with it or familiar with his expression. And so here's a little bit of historical backfill for you. Uh, the saying uh, comes from a, a lecture, uh, actually from a, a book uh, filled with lectures that he gave called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which I have right behind me and I'll uh, be taking out later. And he says uh, in it, well, I'll take it out now as I lost my place. He says, in Japan, we have a phrase, Shoshin which mean, means beginner's mind. The goal of practice is to always keep our beginner's mind. For Zen students, the most important thing is to not be dualistic. Our original mind includes everything within itself. It is always rich and self-sufficient within itself. You should not lose your self-sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. So that last um, line was kind of a, a saying that, that um, yeah, it became quite famous nowadays. And on a side note, the temple that I'm reporting from uh, happens to be called Beginner's Mind Temple. So for those of you who have been to City Center, now you know it's true, uh, true meaning. So uh, what, what is this beginner's mind? Uh, like, like most aspects of, of Buddhism, uh, concepts can be pointed at, but there's just something limited uh, in that, that pointing. If there's no actual embodiment, uh, no practice, and no experience that takes place. So what I thought I would try to do or might be useful is to direct you all to a sense of 
uh, embodiment uh, that you could perhaps work from. So I, I figured um, one way to do that would to have you just kind of uh, orient yourself to the beginning of your thinking mind. Um, and per perhaps from that standpoint, it might be a little bit easier to uh, feel this beginner's mind. So uh, I know we just got done sitting, but I'm gonna invite you to uh, slow down for a moment and uh, go ahead and close your eyes if you're comfortable doing so. And just take a couple of deep breaths. I'm gonna give some prompts, uh, nothing heavy. And if possible, don't be so concerned with the information or the answers that are coming up uh, or the, the questions, but instead try to tap into the sense uh, or the feeling behind whatever memory may be arising. So do you remember your earliest point of inquiry? Again, just sensing, not necessarily trying to remember it. Can you remember the first time that curiosity captivated your imagination? Can you sense what it felt like the first time you wondered, what am I? What about where do we come from? And of course, what happens after we die? For bonus points, I'm gonna throw in, can you imagine what it was like to experience before you knew any words? Okay, you can come back now. So and of course, the answer to these questions are uh, bound to change based on how much these blanks were filled in by what you were told by whoever you're raised by, uh, whatever religion you're exposed to, and other factors of, of early childhood. And so not only do those childhood factors shape how we meet these questions through ideas that we create or uh, the beliefs uh, that, we, that we develop, but on a deeper level, how we settle. And when I, what I say settle or what I mean is kind of how we learn to look away from the desire to know these deep questions at some point. Uh, at some point, we kind of just cut off a certain amount of curiosity to the unknown. Furthermore, the other dynamic that, that forms is a pattern of how we meet the unknown. So again, as I was in the prompt, forget you know um, our actual beliefs uh, or what we do or don't know, but how do we meet what we don't know or not knowing? How do we work with, the, uh, with our perception, with curiosity, the unknown, and other aspects of our receptivity? How do we develop or, I guess, don't develop this beginner's mind? For me, a, a big part of practice or Zen is 
sitting in the middle of this wonderment we call life moment by moment, and meeting each breath, each turning with an openness. Um, and I want to emphasize an openness rather than just saying openness is, I, I don't mean this as a state of being open to different ideas, although you, you likely will be, um, but more from a standpoint or a sense of consciousness, um, the opposite of being closed off or certain in perception and developing kind of an allowance for things or allowing of what is. Uh, going back to Suzuki Roshi, he says, if you discriminate too much, you limit yourself. If you are too demanding or too greedy, your mind is not rich and self-sufficient. If we lose our original self-sufficient mind, we lose all precepts. Furthermore, he goes on and then he says, if you keep your original mind, the precepts will keep themselves. So your original mind has this allowing nature, this allowance built into it. Um, this allowance, I suspect, is why we have a sense of ease or peace when we watch nature. Uh, the way that, that we engage with nature usually involves us turning over a sense of control and just allowing what is. Uh, I tend to experience this with the sense of non-separation that also comes with a sense of, ah, and also, ah. And this kind of awing, either way, is uh, something that children do quite easily. So there are um, several occasions for me personally that uh, created this awe when pondering uh, these questions early on in my childhood. And, and one instance I can think of particularly is probably going back to three or four years old. And right around the, the time where I formed a sense of self, I think, um, or knew that I was like separate from things. And one of my favorite journeys to take would be uh, when I would lie in bed at night, um, I would imagine all the layers of, of stuff. And I say stuff because that, you know, that, that points to actually another point. Um, these, uh, you know, we're kind of given words and ideas on how to deal with these, these big questions. But before we actually know any of that, um, as I was trying to give you in that, that prompt, we actually have to sit with what we don't have an expression for. And I, you know, in a sense to me, this is beginner's mind. So as I was saying, I'm you know, lying in bed at night and just imagining the layers of stuff and now even uh, with education uh, under my belt and, and religion, I still don't have good layers for words of space, um, but I would close my eyes and sense my inner body and then kind of sense my outer body, my skin, my surroundings, the room. And then I would imagine outside of the house into the sky, imagine into the space and then more space and more stars and then what? And it was funny, I used to kind of come to this place where I, it was like just like a gray, I don't know, gray, gray on the outside. But then like, what's after that? So anyways, um, in this process, it wasn't like I was thinking. Uh, my mind was generating concepts and thoughts, but they weren't steering my thinking mind. It was like, more like my imagination was leading me and, and my thoughts were just noticing. Um, so similar to, to watching a creek, 
Um, going back to the, the whole nature thing, you can watch a water flow around the rock. You may understand some of the predictability and know that the water is cool and, and how deep it is. But then there's this wisdom that allows you to not really care about those details. And you're able to just experience the flow, the scenery, uh, the, the, your breath, the rocks, the water, the air, the sun. At some point, um, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, life presented more, more questions than I could really imagine answers for. I don't know if that's what, what happened, but another thing is perhaps I was presented with the idea of infinity, and that was enough for me to just, okay, continuous space, got that. Or I just traded these kind of thoughts or fantasies for other engagements like saving up my allowance and imagining what I could spend it on. So that's, you know, real deal matter. But um, these deep questions that humans have at an early age are something that we first experience from a place of open curiosity. Uh, a curiosity that's generated from a place deep within us that's natural to us in which we experience before we can even describe phenomena or we, we experience before we have words to, to describe phenomena. And this open curiosity is like a, a bond or a magnet that connects us um, to all things. Um, and that's why also when we have trauma, especially at an early age, it can have such a, a significant impact on if we do feel an innate connection to things, people, or, or if we don't. Um, and to, again, to clarify in, in the words, when I say connection, I don't mean like touchy-feely or sense of attraction, um, more so just connection in the sense of non-separation. Um, like our life is not some isolated event that only a single you is happening apart from all other things. Um, again, this, this uh, feeling or sense of connection or disconnection beyond is beyond words definitely but is truly the base of what what all of our life is experienced on so there i was if you imagine four-year-old eli at night in open curiosity trying to gain regain some sense of connection to all space and its contents um, and at the root of that i i kind of suppose that that's what motivates all of these these questions how how can we regain a sense of connection which we are innately born with. So what brought this topic up for me in general, um, besides being at Beginner's Mind Temple and um, all the teacher lineage stuff, uh, really my main source of dharma for anyone who's heard me give a talk in the last uh, four years uh, is my four-year-old daughter, just turned four. So uh, my wife Kat and I are just getting comfortable to feeling like we're competent and supplying basic needs for this extra human. I, I make sure she showered most of the time. She gets fed pretty decent. Um, yeah, all, all the, that kind of things. But uh, we were not quite uh, prepared for what comes along with age four, which is uh, the fact that she's coming with inqu inquiries that, um, uh, like the ones that, that I described before. And in part, I think this is where most parents either do um, or don't have deeper conversations with their children as they start to develop this sense of um, self, 
um, and, and don't feel so connected to the, to the ones that are raising. They feel connected, but they don't feel that they are the ones that are raising them. So the concept of loss uh, at that point evolves from a lost toy to the concept of birth and death. Uh, and you kind of see the innocence bubbles start to burst um, more and more as children understand words and actions. Uh, and especially nowadays, I mean, not gonna go there. But uh, we end up crossing a line at some point of socialization awareness. And we all have different time frames on when this realization of separateness happens and the loss of connection comes about. When um, this realization of separateness does come about, our sense of connection is at risk. And I recognize, and I don't want this to sound like a, a talk on child psychology, but my hope is to point you back to a time where you can just even a little bit just tap in to a felt sense of, of the spirit of beginner's mind. So back to, to Maya, besides waking up to mama, papa, what happens when you die? And I don't want to die. Um, those seem to, it seems to happen once a week, uh, which, which can be challenging because all of a sudden, you know, like I said, even with all this practice that I did or whatnot, I realized that I never really did address that question for myself. And there are, um, don't get me wrong, there are a couple tidbits that I may have not worked out, but feel okay with. Um, but ultimately I can see that at, at some point um, I settled with not figuring out these great mysteries. Um, and it's not that I, the settling that, that kind of, again, uh, is an issue, but there's some kind of closing down of perception of uh, receptivity that, that occurs with that. Um, so all of a sudden there I am and I feel some kind of deep responsibility to meet her in, in some way that does not leave her in the same predicament that I'm in with her 20, 20, make that 30 years down the road. I'll do my math right on that. So anyways, um, her mind uh, has also, it's beautiful, has moved into this, uh, um, I'm in awe, but she's really into the truth of interconnectedness. And I, uh, I say this about Maya, but I think that we all, in a sense, engage with these dynamics at some point or another in life. So that is going from a, a felt sense of together um, to a felt sense of separation. And uh, again, how things were proposed by religion or society may have given you some sense of togetherness or, or, or left some breadcrumbs to follow. Um, and in Maya case, Maya's case, these breadcrumbs uh, came from um, her preschool. So her preschool snack time. Her teachers uh, are amazing. Her school's amazing. Uh, uh, so at snack time, they all gather around. They pass out the, the, the fruit and snacks or whatnot. And they don't study the Titnahan teaching, but I, I feel like he's most famous for it. But when they take the piece of mango and eat the fruit, they take the children through the whole path of existence from the person who plants the seed, tends the soil, the sun, the water, the picker, the shipper, the stalker, whatever, you know, um, all the way to her. So um, how this played out is one day when I was driving her to her nursery school, I um, am that guy. I often have a pack of Altoids on me, like, like my little mints. Um, and I gave her one and she asked where it came from. 
And so I just thought it was like a normal question. So I told her, and I got it from the corner store right there that we passed, but you know, my, you can really get them anywhere food is sold. They're, they're pretty common. And so I thought that was, you know, boom, answer the question, doing my dad thing. A couple of minutes passed and uh, of silence. And then um, Maya goes, uh, it, must, it must take a lot to get all those Altoids to the store. And not knowing how many Altoids possibly uh, existed, she started to go into kind of this conceptual thing um, around how they, how they were made. Um, and it came to the point where she's like, and then Papa, someone has to put a drop of mint in each one. That must take a really long time. And I don't know if she's imagining an assembly line with a little mint dropper. She hasn't ever seen any assembly lines. Anyway, I, I digress. Um, but it's such uh, an amazing time to watch this, the, the balance of this transition from a felt sense of uh, um, non-separation to the sense of separate, and then her just reconnecting the dots through curiosity. So it's not only uh, inspiring to see how much she appreciates the Altoid, recognizing how much of the universe is in it and how much of life is in it, um, but another thing that really stood out to me um, is that she meets the things that she does not know with levity and, and a sense of curiosity. And how at some point in life did not knowing become shameful or an embarrassment? Um, it, it does, right? When did our open curiosity get replaced with skepticism, self-doubt, and disbelief? Uh, turn back to Suzuki Roshi uh, one last time from more on beginner's mind. Uh, he says, in the beginner's mind, there is no thought. I have attained something. All self-centered thoughts limit our vast mind. When we have no thought of achievement, no thought of self, we are true beginners. Then we can really learn something. The beginner's mind is a mind of compassion. When our mind is compassionate, it is boundless. Um, and then maybe I, uh, I'll go back to that last quote um, a little bit later. So with my, it just, uh, yeah, it blows my mind. And it strikes me in my own life led to seeking out a practice that's about meeting this felt sense of separation with an openness uh, and a desire to feel more connected. Um, I joke with Maya's teachers a lot because uh, at the nursery, when we were first getting started, they're like, oh, hey, yeah, do you understand our philosophy? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you, you try to help keep children um, intact or help keep intact uh, what practice often helps grown up, uh, grown up folks learn how to heal, rediscover, or restore. You know, we come to practice usually late, you know, somewhat after our developmental stage or later in life, and we sit on a cushion and we try to get a hold of our life, which in some way feels disconnected. Um, we see our conditioned mind. We kind of meet or perhaps unpack like the ways that our upbringing, including how we were raised and the religious exposures we had shaped us. And see, we're back right where we started um, <laughs> as, as young children. So I, I say, 
that just to say that we don't need to spend all of our uh, time and energy unpacking or doing work around the past. Don't get me wrong, I, I'm not saying it's not important. I do not want to understate that examining conditioning is important, therapy, all that kind of stuff. And um, what I'm really emphasizing is we do also have to turn back towards strengthening our, beginning, our beginner's mind. Um, really practicing that openness to stay connected and bring that, um, bring that in with the examination uh, of those conditions. So the last uh, little bit I wanted to bring forth from Suzuki Roshi, and then I'll, I'll wrap this up. Um, he says, Dogen Zenji, the founder of our school, always emphasized how important it is to resume our boundless original mind. Then we are always true to ourselves in sympathy with all beings and can actually practice. So the most difficult thing is to always keep your beginner's mind. There's no need to have a deep understanding of Zen. Even though you read much Zen literature, you must read each sentence with a fresh mind. You should not say, I know what Zen is, or I have attained enlightenment. This is also the real secret of the arts. So for all you artists out there, always be a beginner. Be very, very careful about this point. If you start to practice Zazen, you will begin to appreciate your beginner's mind. It is the secret of Zen practice. So for me, um, I've found that uh, sometimes it's helpful to study, engage with Buddhist understandings, just as it's helpful to unpack uh, the many causes and conditions. But um, again, what I want you to take away from Maya um, is that engaging with the beginner's mind, engaging with that openness, viewing the world with curiosity, with awareness of interconnectedness around you, um, and the things that we receive, even down to every last Altoid, is the most important part of practice. Mm. And that's why we sit Zazen. <laughs> <laughs>